Hello and welcome to the OECD Education Podcast. My name is Henry Pearson and I work in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. This is to be the first in a series of podcasts highlighting some of the work we do at the OECD, giving you an insight into how we do our research and what the results mean for the education sector as a whole. And the way we'll be doing that is by talking to the people who actually do the research. Each episode will look at a different topic or challenge facing education today. And by chatting with an author who has been researching that topic, we'll be able to get specialised expert analysis on a range of education issues worldwide. So, for our first ever episode, I am joined by Tracy Burns, who is a senior analyst in the OECD's Education and Skills Directorate. Hello. Hi, Tracy. And Tracy's going to be talking to us about neurodiversity in education. What do I mean by neurodiversity? Well, Not every student's brain works and learns in the same way, and educators worldwide are starting to realise that one size does not, in fact, fit all. Variations in the cognitive makeup of students include neurodevelopmental disorders like autism spectrum disorder, ASD, and attention deficit hyperactive disorder, ADHD. Tracy, you recently authored a report on how best to accommodate students with ASD and ADHD and how to prepare them for life after schooling. One of the things that jumped out to me when I read the report was that the diagnoses of neurodevelopmental disorders like these uh, are on the rise. Why is that? There's another, a number of reasons why the diagnoses or the numbers are on the rise. I'd say the first one is better awareness, actually, of what this means and what they look like, better diagnoses. Uh, both from parents and the medical community, but also within the schools themselves. Another, and and I think equally important element, is a reduction of the stigma that's associated. For a long time, it was considered perhaps not necessarily shameful, but awkward or something, not, not something you would want your child to have. And so trying to reduce that stigma and get people speaking about it more openly has really helped with bringing up the numbers or more accurate diagnoses. Does that, that means that there's going to be more of NDD, neurodevelopmental disorders, in classrooms. What kind of problems is that going to, is that going to bring for educators um, who have these, these children in the classrooms who need to learn in that different way? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, this is the key issue for us. I think if you put yourself in the, in the shoes of a teacher and the teacher is already facing a classroom of 20 to 30 students on average across the OECD, And you've got children with very different needs, very different learning styles, and very different personalities. And you add to that children with these kinds of developmental disorders, uh, and you've got incredibly different challenges in front of you. And I think that for teachers, it actually means rethinking the way they teach. There isn't one message that will suit all children, and they need to really be able to tailor their messages to the needs of each of their learners. And that's no small task. So is that already happening? Are there teachers out there and education systems that are already starting to accommodate that new way of learning? I I mean, absolutely, it's already happening. There's been a lot of work already. This has been going on, well, for for decades, actually. In some countries, like the U.S. is is a world leader. There are very dedicated individual teachers all over the world who who feel very strongly and have worked very hard to to be able to address this topic and these students in their classrooms. Um, so the, the challenge is more to roll it out on a system level and in countries which maybe are not quite up at the forefront right now. Do you, do you see any political policy barriers that are going to get in the way of that for some countries? Well, I think, I think there's a number, actually. I think the first one is 
a very practical issue about diagnoses. So if you aren't diagnosing the children at the right stage or with the right with the right condition, then you've already got an issue. Secondly, and this is where stigma plays a role, sometimes parents don't want their children to be labeled with this kind of condition, and so they will they will actively resist that label. If you're a teacher in a classroom, in systems that are well-designed, there's actually a lot of help that can be given to students with these kinds of conditions, but that requires a diagnosis. So it's sort of a stepwise progression. And if we imagine a perfect scenario where the children have been diagnosed, there's clear agreement, the teacher is in agreement, etc., and all we have to do is find the magic, uh, magic solution to, to their learning and teaching, well, then there's the, the standard ones of how do you find the time? How do you actually organize your lessons as a teacher to make it happen? How do you have the, the help and the, the resources to have the, the assistants that come into class to work with these children, etc.? So there's a number of different barriers that are actually pretty important to resolve. I read in the report that there is a slight risk with diagnoses. In order to augment test scores, there are a couple of examples of schools labeling students as special needs or NDD so that they don't have to be included in the major uh, bulk of test results. Is that a risk? Does that happen a lot or is it just a couple of isolated cases? Well, there seems to be growing evidence that in, in countries with high stakes testing, uh, a lot of the work has been done in the U.S. looking at different uh, strategies for examinations across states. And there seems to be some evidence that with states with uh, funding tied to test results and improvement in test results, um, there have been increases in the number of children diagnosed with these kinds of neurodevelopmental disorders. So, um, you know, that's, it, that's suggestive that there's something else at play. And the, the bottom line is that if you can actually take struggling students out of the pool of students who are being assessed, then by definition you're going to normally increase your results. So this, is, you know, this, is, this could be used in a strategic way. Well, I suppose the the answer would be if it on an infrastructure level, if if these NDD neurodevelopmental disorders were more recognised by educators and by the kind of wider society and policymakers, maybe that wouldn't happen so much. Maybe because there would already be systems in place to deal with them, so that would mean that uh, that people wouldn't have an opportunity to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the big questions is, is what do you want out of an education system, right? I mean, I think most people would argue that you want students to learn well. And so having assessments is, is supposed to reinforce that goal rather than create a separate set of goals around it. So if, if our goal for assessment is to just make sure that we're make, meeting the learning needs and, and student achievement of, of, our, of our children, then we need to rethink these kinds of counterintuitive or counterproductive forces that could be actually undermining that goal. So, I, I mean, for me, actually, the, it's really important to get this right, because I think we can't repeat often enough that we need to be able to meet all the needs of all learners. And so something like having a strategy to ex exclude certain children from assessments in order to obtain funding, you know, it might be very strategic in the short term, but in the long term, it's not going to work for the child, it's not going to work for the school, and it certainly won't work for our society. You reminded me of something also uh, in the report, the inclusion versus separate classes for uh, children who struggle with ADHD or ASD, depending, I guess, on the severity of the case. In your opinion, is, is inclusion, full inclusion, the best way for students who learn differently? 
I think, I mean, so neurodiversity is a diverse set of conditions and very diverse students. Naturally. Yeah, so I'm going to give you the, the, the scientific answer, which is it depends. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's no one right answer, right? Um, the, the, the push to include as many children as possible in one classroom is done for very clear reasons to, to raise, you know, to sort of include, uh, raise the aspirations and, and learning goals of, of all children and neurodiverse children, but also their 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 peers, but I think it, you know it it needs to be thought of also on a case by case basis. It may not work for all children, and the goal, of course, would be to make sure that the children's needs are met. I think one of the really interesting things we can do with classrooms, in addition to thinking about personalized learning, is thinking also of ways to recognize the strengths of these students. So how can they be involved in group activities? What are the roles that are most suitable for them? And how can we build their confidence? This, is, this will allow them to not only take part in activities, but also allow them to build bridges and make friendships with other children and with their peers. And this will, in the end, have a positive effect on their development. When responding to, uh, to classes that are neurodiverse with, with kids that uh, have ASD and ADHD, for example, a child with autism spectrum disorder, what actual steps can be taken, say, for an exam, what steps can be taken so that they don't feel at a disadvantage? I think, well, for, for ASD, there's some, some very simple ones, but that turn out to be incredibly important, like um, structuring the routine so that the timing of the assessment is, works, works for the child and isn't disruptive because they, they need to stick to a routine and they, need, they don't tolerate change very well. Uh, something as simple as introducing the, the tester to the child and making them feel at home creating an environment which is welcoming and not distracting for them. Um, all of these things, even though they might be small adjustments, can make a real difference to how the student interacts and how they perform in an assessment. What about ADHD? Is it different? Is it markedly different? Will there be, need to be different uh, approaches taken or, is, or can NDD, neurodevelopmental disorders, be taken as kind of one category? No, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of difference and also individual difference for each child. And of course, neurodevelopmental disorders can co-occur, so you can have more than one at a time. For a very sort of characteristic ADHD profile, you've got, you know, these are students who are easily distracted, who have a hard time sitting down, who, who need to move a lot and who, who can't actually focus for very long periods of time. And there you've got um, adjustments to assessments which reduce the sensory sort of overload, you know, there's less going on for them. The environment is quieter. They're given adapted time so they can take breaks and actually move away and do something else and come back to the test and that doesn't count against them. There's a number of different things which are specific for them which help them perform better on an assessment. Does that need to be extended beyond schools to, uh, to later life? Because these kids will, will graduate and they'll get into the job market um, and the, the workplace can, can be just about as, uh, as unaccommodating and as brutal as, as a schoolroom could be. So uh, do workplaces also need to adapt to, to suit workers with, uh, with these developmental disorders? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think right now, if we, if we fail, what happens in schools to these kids? You've got, you've got poor student achievement on average. You've got uh, risk of higher dropout. You've got uh, children who are more likely to be bullied, more likely to be suspended because they act out. If we then translate this to the perspectives for a labor market, obviously if you've dropped out or if you've achieved poorly, 
you have a very different perspective or options than students who might have done well. If we look at the U.S. figures, it's not always possible to get good, strong figures for this. But in the, the United States, children with neurodevelopmental disorders or adults at this point are 10% more likely to be unemployed and have 33% reduced earnings. So this is a, a really important thing to get right, not just the school piece, but then the transition to the labor market and what happens in the workplace. Are there any companies doing it already? Yeah, there's know? actually, there's a lot. And actually, there's some really interesting work that's being done now. Um, it started in Denmark with kids on the autistic spectrum disorder, partnering with a large technology company, SAP. That work has now spread to a number of different countries, most recently to the U.S., where they're actually deliberately trying to hire children, or these are, sorry, these are adults now, <laughs> deliberately trying to hire adults who um, who are on the spectrum and who have, uh, in some cases, very high concentration abilities. So the example that's given is if you need somebody to check over a set of books or a coding manual or something like that, you can't afford a mistake, actually. And what the, what the, um, the employers report is that for most neurotypical employees, eventually you're going to start getting bored, right? So your attention slips and you pay less, uh, you're less careful, essentially. For people who are well-suited to this role, uh, autism spectrum disorder kids who, who have those, who have these skills, they just don't get bored because they're actually incredibly interested and engaged in checking for the accuracy of certain numbers or certain codes. And this makes them actually perfectly suited to the task, much stronger than somebody who doesn't have that condition. So the trick here is finding the right combination of the tasks required with the skills of the employee. I suppose it's like any, any uh, kind of job recruitment process, you fit the profile to the task. Actually, think, uh, thinking about recruitment, is there a problem? Because the recruitment process is very, very social. It's a face-to-face -face interview. Um, and if, if uh, socializing and social interaction isn't something that a person is, is good at, and I, I suspect that for ASD, ADHD uh, people, that, that is something that's hard, does the recruitment process so that they can get into these jobs need to change? Yes, I think I think that's something that that more and more employers who are interested in really engaging with this issue take seriously and thinking about how do you actually structure a recruitment process to bring out the best in potential employees who might have difficulty with social emotional communication for example or communication at all. And thinking about ways to be flexible to be able to really accurately gauge their skills and abilities for the tasks that they're required to do. If you're not, you know, if when you're being employed, you don't need to chat somebody up, maybe you don't need to check how well they chat somebody up when you're trying to hire them. So part of it is really thinking about what are the skills that are required and what is the best way to measure that and to test for that in an application process. Going back to, to teachers, do you suspect that there is any resistance from educators, teachers, maybe even at a higher level, to these diagnoses and the integration of, of, of the response to the diagnoses into the education process? This is a very long history, actually. There's, it's sort of a, you know, much more, there's a wave of awareness right now, but there's been work, particularly in certain, in certain communities for, for decades. I think that the most common resistance would be around expectations of what the teacher's role is. So teachers are busy people, right? They've, they've got a lot on, they've got a lot of children they need to work with, a lot of children with very diverse needs, even when 
They're all, you know, none of them have a, de- a neurodevelopmental disorder. So if you then are being told as a teacher that you have to adapt yourself even more to the special needs of certain learners and your classrooms are going to become even more diverse and heterogeneous, this is something that could be perceived as just extra workload. And I think that that's where the resistance would come in. Part of that and part of dealing with that is supplying the support that teachers need. If we look at our own teacher surveys, we have the TALIS survey, uh, which has been since 2008 surveying teachers on their, their biggest needs for professional development. And they've reported consistently that their biggest need is for understanding how to work with children with special needs. And that hasn't yet been responded to kind of on a world, worldwide level. It has. I mean, there's a lot of, there is a lot of options out there. There's a lot of ongoing professional development, a lot of initial teacher education on the topic. What we're hearing from teachers is that there's still needs that are not being met. So maybe one question is trying to better tailor the offerings for their needs, and maybe also issues around pairing teachers with experts, so co-teachers or teaching assistants who are able to guide them and help them as they, as they learn how to deal with these students. So there's a number of different options that, that can be done, and I think we're getting better at, and better at addressing it. That's reminded me, there's one statistic in, in, uh, in your report that I have to mention because it was just fascinating to me. 43% of people in the U.S. wrongly believe that um, neurodevelopmental disorders like these are positive correlated with IQ. Yeah. And to me, that that's, was the biggest uh, red flag of just incorrect attitudes about neurodevelopmental disorders. And I, uh, I just wanted to see what you, what you thought of that. I think it's very common, and I, I think there's two possibilities. So the, the, the exception is this idea we have that, that autistic kids or kids somewhere on the spectrum, Asperger's kids, might be the rain men, for example, so that they can do anything, right? You know, you take them to a gambling casino and they can actually uh, count all the cards perfectly as they did in the movie. But, But more seriously, that they might have these special skills which actually make them extraordinarily intelligent. That exists, but it's a very small minority of the kids. So what you have with the majority of kids with neurodevelopmental disorders is, you know, just like any other set of students, a whole spectrum of intelligence. You've got smart kids, you've got less smart kids, etc. What seems to happen pretty consistently, though, is that because of their behavioral manifestations, so if they have trouble, if you're ADHD, trouble sitting down, trouble paying attention, or if you have trouble communicating, if you're ASD, what happens is that, one, you're not as able to learn, but secondly, you're not as able to demonstrate what you know. And so that's where the misconception comes from, that not only are you not able to learn as well as your counterparts, but even when you do know something, you're not as able to express it. And so that is, unfortunately, where the confusion comes from. And so being able to actually ask questions in a way that they can answer can demonstrate and sometimes refute a lot of these prejudices by just showing that, you know, many of them have many of the same intellectual abilities. It's just finding the right way to tap into that. What would be interesting to know is uh, what will happen if we don't respond? What's, um, what will happen to classrooms? What will happen to education if, if we continue to basically ignore the problem? I would find it unlikely that we would because of one key player that we haven't talked about yet. But um, parents are playing more and more a role, actually, um, in, in speaking up for their children and searching for solutions and really trying to get them the help they need and the tailored support they need in classrooms. So 
in countries and in areas where parents feel empowered and they have access to the services to really advocate for their children, this is actually something which they will be they will play a major role in making sure that this doesn't go away and making sure that it is addressed and we do the best we can for these children. In countries where this is less prevalent or parents are less willing to take on this role, you do unfortunately have the risk of continuing the status quo, which is underserving these these kids, both in education and then in their entry into the labor market. And I think the risks are, I mean, the risks are both individual and societal. If, if we can't help people, all people reach their potential, you know, we don't actually make the gains that we want. We don't allow people to reach their full potential and they can't contribute to society in the way that they would be able to if we were able to give them those tools. So I think I think it's really, a, you know, it's partially an ethical question, but partially also just a pragmatic question of just making sure that we have this, given the skills needed to our children so that they can fully realize themselves as individuals, but also then give back to our societies and our economies. So I guess you're saying that we need to build a bigger system, a more comprehensive system that goes beyond school. So it's not just the teachers being left to deal with this. It's there's parents and then maybe, as we were talking about earlier, employers as well, maybe even higher, because, of course, these things need to need to be implemented on a, a policy level. And I guess, for me, my main worry would that be, does the message reach to the top? Is it reaching to the top? As in the people who actually create these, uh, the education systems, the people in charge of the policy that is going to trickle down to the students themselves. I have a number of responses to that. Um, first, let <laughs> choose me, one. Yeah, let me let me step back. Actually, I I would say we don't need a bigger system. We need a smarter system. Okay. We need a system which is able to meet the needs of all learners. So personalized learning, which has a number of different educational challenges in it, but it means also integrating different services and really thinking about how we want education and labor and health and those kinds of different ministries which tend to operate in isolation to work together. And it's not a question of building more and more and making this a much more cumbersome kind of process, but really rather of aligning and streamlining so that it works well and can be flexible when needed. In terms of the penetration of of the knowledge or how much is there political will to to make a change, um, I would say yes for, for two reasons. One is there is an imperative. There's a social imperative, an ethical imperative, also a financial imperative that we can, we can, we can show very clearly the the importance and the research behind this. It's uh, the OECD has has done a little bit. There's been a lot more done in a lot of other places. So there's very good arguments that we can muster to help convince decision makers. The second reason is that decision makers are often parents, and if they don't have neurodiverse kids, they might know people who do. And there's nothing more compelling than actually having a face to put to a story to make you understand why you should care and why you should act. Well, we've just about run out of time, unfortunately. I think we could probably talk about this all day. But I just want to say thank you to Tracy. Thank you very much. And uh, some really interesting insights in there. And thank you to everyone else for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe and maybe share the podcast with a friend. We've got some great episodes coming up, uh, topics including TALIS, which is our Teaching and Learning International Survey. And don't forget to follow the OECD Twitter account for the Education and Skills Directorate, which can be found at OECD EduSkills. 
as well as our Education and Skills Today blog at oecdeducationtoday.blogspot.com. Thank you, everyone. Until next time.